Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Conversation. I am John Idarola, and over the course of the next half hour, we're gonna have two awesome interviews for you. In just a little bit, we're gonna be speaking with Mel Gagarin, who's running for Congress in New York's 6th District. That should be a lot of fun, but before we get to that, we have another interview, and I'm very excited to launch into this first topic. We have heard quite a bit about socialism on the news over the past couple of years. I noticed that almost never were the conversations about socialism being held by people who identified as socialists or had you know a passable idea of what the concept even was, let alone how it would be applied to the United States. But we hope to change that with this conversation, where we're joined by the founder and editor-in-chief of Current Affairs and the author of Why You Should Be a Socialist, Nathan J. Robinson. Welcome to the Damage Report. Hello, nice to be with you, thank you. I'm very glad to have you here. There's multiple things that we wanna to talk to you about, but why don't we start with Current Affairs. When you started Current Affairs, you wanted to have a magazine that approached politics from a leftist point of view. So talk to us about that beginning, how things have developed over time. Oh yeah, well, we are a print magazine based in New Orleans, and we started with a small crowdfunding campaign in 2015. And we, in 2016, we published an article suggesting that if Bernie Sanders wasn't nominated, Trump would be president, and that got us a lot of subscriptions. And <laughs> since then, we have sort of built up, and we're part of a a new wave of left media institutions. I was inspired by Jacobin, but there are all these wonderful podcasts and magazines and websites that are all springing up that are sort of part of the young left. And so uh, there's so much that I wanna to talk to you about. But uh, so yeah. you, you've talked a little bit about some of the new infrastructure that, that's around um, as an alternative to, I, I, in my intro, I was alluding to like when MSNBC would talk about socialism. They, sure. like, like, I, like I said, you never have a socialist on to talk about that. No. Oh, what no. what oh, do you no. think about the, the current like status of the conversation around socialism? How much people, how much people out there actually know about what it represents, uh, the way that it's pitched by the media? What do you think about all of that? Well, I mean, I think, uh, so it's true that you won't see a, a self-identified socialist on MSNBC much, um, but things have changed a lot, right? I mean, the fact that the majority of young people are sympathetic to that label of socialism, uh, the fact that I was able to put out a book called Why You Should Be a Socialist with a mainstream publisher when uh, previously uh, that sort of thing would have been confined to the radical left press, I mean, the fact that Bernie Sanders, after many years as a fringe independent, is now a major contender for the Democratic presidential nomination. All of this represents the mainstreaming of the concept of socialism. Now, whether the concept of socialism is any more clarified, but I argue in the book that I think when young people say they identify with socialism, they are identifying with a particular set of political instincts and placing themselves in a particular political position. <laughs> So that's interesting. So let's get into the book. So first of all, when you know a host on MSNBC will you know ask Bernie Sanders like they did in 2016, they are now saying you identify as a socialist. Isn't that going to make it harder to get elected? What do you think they mean by that label? And when you use the term, what do you mean? When you're saying why people yeah. should be socialists, yeah. what does that mean to you? Yeah, so I think the distorted understanding of socialism is that it's central planning of the economy. That's what you see in Rand Paul's new book, The Case Against Socialism. He says it's government control of production. That's what a socialized economy is, but that's a very 
That's really not a helpful definition of socialism because the socialist political tradition um, has always had, it's had a lot of people who are anarchists who hate the government in it. Um, it's had lots and lots of different ideas of what a socialized economy would be like. But the place that all socialists do begin, um, the, the understanding that I think that they share is opposition to class division in society. And particularly the division between and having a class of people who owns and a class of people who works and sells their labor. And economic socialism has always begun from the principle that you know workers ought to be the ones who own their factories. There ought to be democratic workplaces. Now that's not the same thing as government ownership because you can have a very undemocratic kind of government. But the thing that socialists have always looked at, it really has been based of inequality and not just inequality of, uh, of wealth, but inequality of power. And that's one reason that socialism and feminism, socialism and anti-racism are compatible because socialists have always disliked the unequal, radically unequal distribution of power. Yeah, it, it, when you described Rand Paul in particular there, it sounds like he's just using the word socialism, but what he means is, uh, you know, examples from the last 70 or so years of communism effectively. Um, he's not yeah. talking about current, you know, Western countries that have democratic socialist governments or parties or policies. Um, no. Okay, so let, let's focus more on your book. So uh, I know you don't want to give it all away, you want people to read the book, but <laughs> sure. why should people be socialists? Well, people should be socialists because the socialists have been on the right side of history before and are on the right side of history now. In fact, I talk a lot about the American tradition of socialism. And if you look at socialists in the United States, it's not gulags, it's not persecution. In fact, socialists have been the foremost champions of civil liberties. They have been the ones who have opposed our unjust wars. I look back to Eugene Debs, whose opposition to World War One landed him in prison. To Martin Luther King, who described his vision for a more socialized society, people like Albert Einstein, people like Helen Keller, um, they have been the sort of the, the great minds of this country, and they have been the great prophets of justice. And you know, when socialists have gotten into government here, they've done very well. They've done good things. Socialists passed lots of workplace safety regulation. When Bernie Sanders was the socialist mayor of Vermont, he did a great job. There was a socialist mayor of Milwaukee for 24 years who was voted the best, one of the best mayors in the country. Uh, socialists in America have done a really, really good job whenever they've been in government. And so that's why people should join that political tradition and look back uh, to those heroes and seek inspiration from them. And as you alluded to earlier, it does seem like uh, a lot of young Americans have, they're not accepting the framing of socialism that Fox News wants. Um, so do you think that the stigma that remains is is every year is it getting a little bit better are we moving past those historical examples and focusing more on the, what what socialism can do in particular in america in the future as you sort of sketched out are, are you not yeah. worried about stigma in the in future elections well, it's worrying in that a lot of uh, demonization of socialism persists. And of course, it's often very scary, right? I mean, the conclusion of books like Rand Paul's is like the socialists pose a threat, we need to stop this threat at all costs. So if people who think that way are in power, uh, then it's very, very dangerous um, for people who identify as socialists. But generally, the trend has been very promising. I mean, Bernie Sanders has really normalized uh, the label, and I, I find that lots more people 
are coming to accept it. Lots more people are getting curious about the socialist tradition. We have people who are conservatives who read current affairs and go, you know, I disagree with some of what you say, but I at least accept that you are worth having a conversation with. And in fact, the book is kind of written for people who are skeptics of socialism, so that hopefully at the end, even if they don't come away as full-blown socialists, they come away as people who think that the socialist position is legitimate and that it should be a major part of the political conversation. Yeah, and look, I know some of the people who are opposed to socialism, they don't support Bernie Sanders. They're worried about the stakes. They think, well, Donald Trump is so bad. I mean, if we nominate someone who has this albatross around their neck, they could potentially lose. What I find interesting about that is that I just today read an article on the Daily Beast about how Donald Trump is worried against running someone championing socialist policies. I wrote an op-ed for The Hill making that case several months ago. Donald Trump is pitching himself as a populist, I would say a fake populist. Do you think that it is in fact a socialist who is best suited to run against someone like Donald Trump? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can really see from that that report that came out about Donald Trump that Donald Trump doesn't really know how to run against Bernie Sanders. He says Bernie Sanders, well, he just says he's crazy, right? But of course, Bernie Sanders has a very good response, which is, well, is it crazy to believe in universal health care? Is it crazy to believe in justice in the workplace? Is it crazy to believe in universal childcare, et cetera, et cetera? Um, it's Donald Trump runs against the Democratic establishment, right? Which is, I mean, he runs against those who are in the pocket of Wall Street, he runs against those who have been responsible for America's unjust wars, those who have been corrupt. And Bernie Sanders isn't associated with any of that. He's in fact been running against those things himself, but he's an authentic populist. He really actually wants to deliver for the people. He's not gonna put people like Betsy DeVos and Steve Mnuchin in his cabinet, right? And so I think when you see the real genuine article, someone who is actually representing the interests of the people versus Donald Trump, his phony populism is finally going to be exposed, and my suspicion is that it would it would completely crumble. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so look, obviously, you, you've you've started a magazine, you've got a book, you're doing all of this to, to persuade people um, of your your political beliefs and your political values. Um, the you know the media landscape can be very difficult. Um, so I'm curious, uh, along the way, what what have you learned about? You know, generating an audience, existing mm-hmm. in a niche, um, gaining credibility, yeah. those sorts of things. What are some of the lessons that you've learned along the way? Well, one thing that we've learned is that media can be more viable than people think. I mean, it's true that there are, it's a bleak landscape with all the journalistic layoffs. Um, but if you produce something that is really good quality, and as you say, has an audience who really likes it, um, and you know like who's supposed to read this thing. I mean, I always try and think like, is the reader enjoying themselves? Am I making politics feel like eating your vegetables? Or are we? <laughs> is this a magazine that is a pleasure to read. Um, Jacobin and then us have made print media work in a time when people say that print is dead. I think it really is a matter of, and it's not about marketing. We haven't done any advertising and we have no advertisers. Um, It really is, we're completely sort of crowdfunded by our subscribers. Crowdfunding is great. A lot of people have found a way to make a living that way. Um, And we've, we've managed to build a sustainable enterprise by keeping our costs low, keeping our quality high and really caring a lot about our audience. 
You know, so whenever I do an interview like this, obviously I want the audience to learn something, but I too want to learn something. So, you know, I'm a host on the Young Turks, we're a left media organization. Mm-hmm. I would love to see more socialists on shows like ours, but also on you know mainstream media channels, things like that. You know, as a proponent for these sorts of things, what are some of the topics you'd like to see discussed more often? Uh, on shows like ours or on CNN, MSNBC, who are some of the, the voices, the writers that you would like to see featured more, their perspectives featured more? Gosh, well, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't want to go, the Young Turks, I mean, I, you're, you're the last people that I need to be instructing on how to build good progressive media. I actually, there's an appendix in the book that has dozens of writers and commentators that I think need to be heard from more and lots and lots of great little media outlets. So, I mean, I instead of just going through a list of names, I would refer people to this long appendix where okay. I compiled all of the names of people. The, the, the two, I mean, the, well, actually the, the Few big issues that get undercovered are, of course, uh, labor, um, climate, um, and uh, the oh, and oh, the and nuclear proliferation and war. Right? These are the things that get so little attention or are talked about in bad ways. Sometimes things get sufficient attention, but they're talked about in the wrong mm. ways. Like talking about you know whether the U.S.'s strategy in the Middle East is serving its interest versus whether it's legitimate for us to even pursue <laughs> those interests in that same way. So I think part of it is about covering things more and getting the right people on it. And part of it is about changing what we're, what, the way we talk about things and drawing att- more attention to the actual human consequences of everything we discuss. So when we discuss yeah. Trump, discuss who his policies affect, not just the personal drama and you know whatever he tweeted yesterday. Yeah, uh, Nathan Robinson, thank you so much for joining us. I uh, feel like I learned a lot. The, uh, the book is Why You Should Be a Socialist. Uh, the magazine is Current Affairs. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the conversation today. Hey, thanks very much for having me on, appreciate it. Thank you. We are gonna take a short break, but stick around because we've got another interview coming up after this. Joining us now is a candidate for running for Congress in New York's 6th District, Melchiades Gagarin. Welcome to the conversation. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, very glad to have you here. Uh, you know, I, I know we talked a little bit earlier on the race, uh, but I'm excited to get uh, get an update on that. Introduce you to uh, some more people. So, um, for those who might not have seen the first time that we spoke, um, you know, who are you? What are you bringing to this race? Um, so, my name is Melga Garen, um, a progressive Democrat that's uh, challenging uh, Grace Meng, who's the, the current incumbent uh, here in New York's congressional district. Um, and you know, we are fighting to you know join this movement that's been growing here throughout Queens. Um, you know, proud to be part of uh, a, a slate of candidates uh, that includes obviously Alexandria Ocasio Cortez as a brand new Congress endorsed uh, candidate. Um, and you know, we are are, are fighting to bring all of the progressive change that we need that is gonna center marginalized communities and working class folk back in the conversation that hasn't been happening with the establishment and under this current administration. Yeah, and New York in particular has had some issues at the state level with that. Let's talk about your background. You have been involved in a number of different areas of politics, more than mm-hmm. most people that we talk to. So run me through some of that experience. <laughs> I'm sorry, can you say that last part again? I lost you. So uh, just run us through uh, some of the the past political work activism that you've been involved in. 
Sure. Um, yeah, so I, I used to work at the, for, the, for the state senator here. Um, I worked for Congressman Anthony Weiner for a bit before I left uh, electoral politics um, and went to do public policy advocacy in the nonprofit space um, at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. I worked at Planned Parenthood in New York City for a bit. Uh, and most recently, uh, doing criminal justice reform work at the intersection of higher education and women's rights, trying to uh, um, increase access to, to higher education for currently and formerly incarcerated folks. Um, eventually, found myself volunteering uh, on the Caban campaign, and you know, going around here in Queens, seeing all of the energy and 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 hunger that that folks have for progressive policies, um, really inspired me to to take the dive and and run for Congress because um, if there was ever a time. Uh, for for a progressive movement to really have an impact and a wide ranging impact to finally make change, it's it's now. You know, it's interesting because when I when I think of the stereotypical um, lives that candidates come from, you know, lawyers are going to be overrepresented, people in business, sometimes doctors or career politicians. It seems to be much more common, and even as you pointed out, there's this sort of thing happening in New York where people are coming with a background, a broad background in activism. Um, you know, I know that the, the former lawyers are gonna say, well, you need to understand the law if you're gonna pass laws. So what do you think, um, you know, moving into the House, having this background in activism, what does that bring as an alternative? Sure, I mean, it's not even just my background in activism, it's just the lived experience, right? My, my opponent, she comes from a political family, the vast majority of her career, she's been a politician. In the crisis that we face now, we don't need politicians. Politicians aren't what's gonna get us out of this mess. It's gonna be people with the lived experience. It's like, I grew up in a one bedroom apartment with my mom who was a nurse and my abuela who, who helped raise me because my, my, my dad wasn't around. Um, and it, you know, I lived that working class experience. You know, I went to to do the work that I did because I was always motivated to serve others. I wanted to work to improve the system that that we were working in. And I, I think that that type of experience is is missing in in Congress. I think we have a handful of electeds that have made it thanks to this progressive movement that's been sweeping the country. But it's not enough. And what we need is a real firewall um, that's going to to advocate on behalf of of working families and 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 working folk who have been left out of the conversation for so long. I've seen that you said that you know the last time that you ran for political office, which was way back in 2009, there wasn't the same sort of infrastructure, the same sorts of organizations. Talk to me about some of the ways that what's been developed since then is important for candidacies like yours. I mean, I think the most important thing is that there there really is a movement. It's not just like, you know, we see, I know, one of my fellow we share volunteers. Um, you know, we 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 coordinate with each other. We, we we're working together. There really is this sense that it's not just us as individuals running. Um, that there is an entire cadre of folks throughout this this borough and throughout this city, really, um, who are 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 really working together um, and coordinating our efforts to to make sure that we all we all make it right. It's it really is sort of that not me us uh, idea that you hear coming out of the Sanders campaign, and we're yeah. putting it into practice. And uh, so you have these organizations, you also thanks to in no small part those organizations the last time around you have some incumbents now who ran as progressives, they have continued to legislate as progressives. How important is it to have people like AOC and Ilhan Omar and other members of the squad who've sort of shown that this sort of campaign can win? 
I mean, it's incredibly important because um, you know you're, you're always, especially as a challenger, everybody's telling you what you can't do. Um, and what 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 those amazing women have shown us is that it is possible to be an elected official that stands on principle, that is going to legislate on principle, um, and and that they can win, right? Because when you look at to take AOC for example, you know everybody these days they they support the the Green New Deal. Um, here you have a freshman Congress member who's already introduced two pieces of legislation that takes that from framework into implementation. And you have incumbents that have been there like mine for eight years who say they support the Green New Deal, yet have nothing to show for it. Yeah, um, so let's, we've talked about your history. Obviously, you've been involved in activism around a few different issues. So um, now you're, you're campaigning, what are some of the core issues that you're focusing on? Um, housing is definitely one of them. Um, you know, we have a homelessness crisis throughout this country, and it, it, we see it here in New York, where we have over 62,000 um, folks that uh, are, are home insecure. 20,000 of those, which are families. I'm a supporter of a homes guarantee. I mean, housing is a human right. I don't believe that in the richest country in the world, anyone um, deserves to die in the street. Um, you know, especially with everything that's going on internationally right now. Um, I'm, I, I really believe that we need a new foreign policy. That we need to divest from the war machine. Um, you know. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't take any money for the military-industrial complex. Unfortunately, I can't say the same for for my opponent. I mean, you know, she voted against the Iran deal, for instance, um, and no one wants these wars anymore. And when I go around and talk to people in the community, um, you know, they want to see investment right here. They don't want to see us entering other another endless war. They don't want to see another generation that gets lost and sacrificed to another boondoggle in the Middle East. You know, I definitely want to get into your your opponent in just a minute. Um, mm -hmm. So, look, we we obviously over the past few weeks we came what what felt like very close to a full all out conflict with Iran. There's still very much the chance that while Donald Trump is president, that could happen. If you were in office right now, what would you be working towards? What can be done to constrain that sort of conflict? And if we get a Democratic president in the future, what should the legislature do to stop rogue presidents from? You know, launching us into these endless wars. Right, and it, look, I think that fundamentally the first mistake that was made is that Congress sort of relegated its authority over its war powers. So that was mistake number one. You know, in when we had the Iran deal, like I said, my my opponent ended up voting against the Iran deal even after it was implemented. You know, she tried to undermine it by voting to put backdoor sanctions on Iran, even though the Obama administration had had been very adamant about saying that this would not help meet our foreign policy goals. What we need. Is to rethink what our foreign policy is instead of thinking about the military as as our first stop. I mean, watching the debate last night, I found it sort of instructive that every candidate got asked maybe two or three different scenarios in which they would use the military, but they were never asked what their foreign policy would be that would make sure that we never entered in these wars in the first place. And look, I'm not naive. It's not that it's going to be an easy solution, but <laughs> it's what's demanded of us, right? Like that's our job as legislators. That's our job to to protect our country and to protect uh, um, you know our our, our our resources and our people is to make sure that we have a foreign policy that is not putting um, the, the the war machine at the forefront um, and be the automatic answer that we that, that, that we lean on. So um, you, you've mentioned the current Democratic incumbent you're running against is Grace Meng, uh, who's held the seat since 2013. You've mentioned her uh, opposition to the Iran deal, which certainly sets her apart from most Democrats. Um, what are some of the other areas that you're stressing as differentiating factors as you're campaigning? 
I mean, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely one of those differentiating factors because you know it's it's someone that wants to pass off as as a progressive and that you know that they're they're doing the job of a Democrat, but it's not the case. I mean, when you look at her foreign policy, she's in lockstep with President Trump, right? I mean, it, after he railed against the Iran deal in the 2009 State of the Union, you know, she put out a statement saying that she stands ready to work with the president, um, and that's absurd to me because we know who this man is, and it, that's acting as if he had some type of, of sensible foreign policy, which we know he, he doesn't. We know that he's reckless. We know he's a danger to this country, um, and 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 we need to stand against that. And that's 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 one of those differences that I think is important to hammer home because it's one of the most critical things um, that I think affects not just my generation but the generation coming up. Um, you know, I have three children. I I don't want to see my son have to be shipped off to to war one day because, um, you know. Uh, we had members of Congress that were willing to look the other way that called themselves Democrats and then went ahead and voted with Republicans. So if Donald Trump does get reelected, but you win, should I put you down as not standing ready to work with the president? Absolutely, I will be uh, I will be a big roadblock to a President Trump's presidency and really take the fight to him because that's what we need. Look, I'm a hard scrabble kid from Queens too, and I, I'm ready to take the fight on to this president because we can't politic our way out of the moment that we're in. I think that what we need is our elected officials that recognize the danger that Donald Trump poses and 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 that are going to fight him every step of the way and not see yeah. ground to this presidency. Uh, where can people find out more about your candidacy? Um, they can go to www.melfortprogress.com. Um, you know, we, we could use any small donations. Uh, we are not taking any corporate PAC money. I've signed the code PINK, uh, divest from the warm stream pledge. I've signed the Sunrise Pledge and not taking fossil fuel money. Uh, we're totally people powered. Uh, so you can learn more about me there and hopefully uh, please support the campaign because we're gonna need everything we can to combat the big dollars that our incumbent takes. <laughs> awesome, well, Mel Gagarin running in uh, New York 6th District. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And thank you at home for watching this episode of The Conversation. I really appreciate you, two great conversations. I look forward to speaking with both of them again in the future. If you are a member, you can stick around after this break. There is going to be a post game. Brett is gonna be back in studio, I believe Tamara as well. They're gonna give you some behind the scenes on TYT, so it should be a lot of fun. Thank you for joining me for this show, and we'll see you after this.